Hi, welcome back to the Arkia podcast. I am your host Utsav Kamboj and in this episode I am in conversation with Sarika Shetty, design director at SJK Architects. Tune in to this episode where we have a detailed discussion about the Dasavtar Hotel which is so inspired and a lot more. So let's dive in. Welcome Sarika Shetty. She is the design director at SJK Architects and she is a highly passionate architect driven by uh, sensitivity to environment and our historical context of our country and I'm really excited for this conversation and I've, I'm looking forward to learning a lot from her. Welcome to this live session Sarika. Thank you. Thank you Utsav and thank you for being patient with this whole interface of entering into this whole new medium for me. Thank you. No, it's my pleasure. So, how are you doing and how are you making the most of this work from home situation? How I'm doing? Um, I think this is a question that is kind of going on all around. Uh, how am I doing? I think from a work perspective, it's been pretty efficient and productive because otherwise I was traveling for more than two, two and a half hours, more than two and a half hours to work. Um, so that's a huge relief in terms of uh, travel. Um, of course, you're with family. Uh, uh, we have school going on. So we have online schooling going on. Uh, no maids, no help. So it's a huge amount of balancing act. Right, right, right. So uh, you have been associated with the firm for over 18 years now. And apart from this work from home situation, how does a typical day at SJK office look like? And how do you think... The firm has evolved over these years. I think a typical day, uh, it differs from phase to phase. So depending on which phase of the project you are in, uh, I think a day seems very different. Um, Currently, in the last uh, more than six months, what we are into or more than a year we are into is finally a lot of our projects have gone on site after huge hauls on permissions and funding and many other uh, impediments that you usually kind of face as an architect in your life. Um, And we're finally kind of on site. So what a usual day is, is um, of course, throughout, it's a lot of collaboration, a lot of engagement, a lot of interactions. When you're on site, the interaction just totally increases because you're interacting with the clients, the contracting team, the PMC team, uh, the consultants, your own team. So it's a lot of interactions. And it's a lot of checking of drawings. Uh, It's a lot of minute uh, refinement that you have to keep looking out for that. Did you miss anything? You know, is this going to work from all perspectives? Uh, Am I kind of missing any aspect which will lower down the value addition that I had started off for? Um, So it's, it's kind of being on your toes all the while to make sure that all of the elements that you kind of started off this project for in terms of its intent, uh, none of these uh, things like structures, MEP, FFE, everything that comes into it, they don't dilute your final design ethos. So yeah, so that's what a usual day is like. What we also have something which is very interesting in the office is we have the lunch sessions where we all collectively come together and have lunch. And uh, uh, what really uh, is the purpose of the session is we all kind of, every day one person presents something that 
uh, they're passionate about or they want to share with the office. It could be uh, within the spectrum of architecture. It could be anything, uh, anything. Um, so that's in a way also a medium in which, uh, you know, a lot of young interns and younger architects who kind of join the office, uh, they have a way in which they're able to kind of come into the office and the practice and able to kind of voice their opinions. It also helps us understand each other much well, you know, in terms of what people are thinking, whose inclination is what, why does one kind of uh, prefer something over the other. Because I think culturally and from an upbringing perspective, all of us have come from different backgrounds. So uh, to know each other, this is kind of a, it's kind of a very nice way that uh, we all mingle with each other. Yeah, very exciting so that's what a I, usual I, day. I, I'm really jealous. I never had that when I was working in the office. <laughs> but right. even this one, actually, to get to this lunch session and make it so systematic, it was a lot of learning to try and see what systems work. Initially, it used to be voluntary. And when it used to be voluntary, things never used to work. And then it came as a system where we used to get when interns would come in, one of the interns would become responsible for giving names and it used to go on a rotational basis. So you know that in a month, at least your name would come once or twice because we're roughly about 20 of us, uh, 20 to 23 of us at any given point, inclusive of the interns. Um, so then after that system was put in, then it was literally like, you know, there's a responsibility. It's your day on this date you better kind of be ready for 1.15 on that date. So uh, I think it's quite exciting to be able to share what you're thinking outside your spectrum, within your spectrum, all of it. Right, right. So the firm still uses physical modeling for 3D visualization. And in today's era where softwares are dominant so much, how important do you think it is to de develop designs using physical models? You know, for that's uh, for that uh, for us, that's like uh, a way of life in the office. It's a very important tool. Um, I think it's uh, of course we use a lot of SketchUp. We use uh, uh, um, we use particularly SketchUp, but I think what uh, a model does is uh, right from a block model that kind of gives you a complete perspective of you know what. Uh, you'd like this building to kind of develop as and how do you want to transform it. It's like a layer by layer that you kind of keep peeling off. It's like an onion. You know, you keep peeling off more and more, uh, you know, more and more on how much you're going to cry with it. So here it's a building that you develop where you start with a block model. You realize what's working, what's not working, because when it comes to design parameters, it's right from your context of climate, your context of culture, your context of uh, materiality. But all of these keep filtering at each stage for you to start with a block model, then develop it into another level, and then it comes to a detailed model. And I think what helps for us is, and even for our clients, taking this worm's eye view of taking a model and literally going inside it and kind of figuring out what the space would look like, we literally kind of keep it with the sun, move the model with the sun to see during the day, at different times of the day, how is this going to work. Um, it was, there was an extent where at times we had figured out even how a sun path model with a bulb would work to really see how, you know, before SketchUp and all came and you could put your latitude inside to see what your sun paths would do. We literally had done a beam of a bulb to kind of see how the model works. So I think it's very important for us. 
uh, and the tactility of the model and what even that does to the clients and we have this lovely boy called vijay who started off as a peon and has kind of you know reached a stage where he is amazingly amazingly talented and he is a model maker he's a kind of a 3d visualizer um and uh, uh, he does amazing models so it enables us to even in an exonometric we make models which are removable so it's like literally floor wise so you're able to kind of see uh, even within while you're within the space how do you want to perceive the space uh, and it helps our sites hugely we carry these models to our sites wherever they are uh, they are in the country and we're able to kind of do our first kick off meetings with the whole site team i think far more successfully than doing a walk through of views uh, so and many layers it helps hugely so even though there are other models uh, of uh, 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 you know working with uh, uh, 3d visualization tools um, i think a model is something which is just so 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 touch feel that the tactility of it is uh, not comparable to a 3d view maybe but of course uh in this kind of a time if this has to continue we have to look at uh sprucing up our uh, uh, 3d visualization skills which we already have uh, but it's still uh, it's still the models that we incline towards right right so in all of your projects sensitivity towards nature and users is always incorporated through your design and i'm really curious to know what is your design approach towards achieving this i think it comes pretty consciously because it it's it's the way uh, uh, uh it's i think it's who we are and how uh, we kind of uh, uh, ensure that this uh, um, what is nature at the end of it it's uh, uh, it's how do you bring your light in how do you bring your wind in uh, how do you consciously kind of tread on that earth while you're building on the site uh, and how much do you conserve from the site how you kind of able to keep that flora and fauna that comes in with the site um, to really not disturb the biodiversity of the site and that's i think uh, something which is ingrained in our dna and uh, that goes without saying for us to make sure that uh, uh, we do our projects uh, where it's literally kind of a given so uh, um, like many examples if i can give um you know one of our projects which is a factory in karur for a uh, 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 textile uh, weaving company um what uh, uh, karur is literally a very hot and dry climate and we very uh, kind of uh, in the indian uh, uh, belt we are very close to the equator um so uh, when it came to the sun studies what we realized was that uh, the north light was not the best solution for this particular region uh and we adopted the monitor roof system now these are factory sheds which have vaulted roofs and um they are sheds which are they basically uh bays of spaces uh where you're checking fabric you're checking fabric which goes into the international market and hence colors and weaves are so important that daylight is uh, completely the key to this kind of a project um so with this monitor roof uh and with the thermal insulation that this whole shed or the factory building had to uh, get in 
um the final merit or the outcome of the project was that you know when the client you did not need uh, lights you had daylight uh, to do this of course they would kind of switch on their lights uh, when they would kind of uh, move towards the latter part of the day but uh, uh, the merit was that uh, the productivity for the client literally she gave us the statement uh, at the end of the project was that she had 200% productivity and that's only because of the way the daylight kind of penetrated into this project and the task which was the final outcome for a building like that was done with all that ease uh, yeah so i think uh, so bringing in nature and people centric spaces is i think very important to us right right so since we have been in this pandemic situation for quite some time everybody is taking a step back and you know implying on the kind of negative impact that we have created on the environment and that climate change is really a really big concern for everybody so creating a design which is in context with the immediate surroundings and the climate and the site has become the need of the hour so how do you think architects and designers can start looking at spatial planning differently now to achieve this uh, to solve this problem So you know, Utsav, this has actually existed for years. As in, all our ancient buildings uh, have been kind of following these ethos of uh, how do you kind of bring the light in, how do you bring the wind in. Uh, fabulous examples I can think of is standing in Hawa Mahal and literally seeing how the entire wind patterns work there is beautiful. Standing in Fatehpur Sikri and seeing how the jalis kind of cut off the heat. Uh, from the rest of the space is beautiful so it all exists and i think we've as a culture have always had it uh, somewhere maybe we deviated in uh, our human centric ways of kind of working uh, i think as an architectural fraternity a lot of us are very conscious about this and are kind of treading uh, into our projects pretty consciously uh, where it really needs to make a difference is at the policy levels and especially when it comes to a lot of government projects where uh you know you're seeing huge amount of uh biodiversity loss uh i've been reading about the italian uh hydropower project and the dibang valley um and what are we kind of at the end gaining through hydropower we are kind of losing biodiversity which has been there in that region uh for kind of a long 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 time and uh solutions like even ra you know kind of after cutting down the trees and saying that we can plant sapling somewhere else the quality of air that you lose out in that particular space you can't get it for the next 50 years uh um, so so i think it's it's a lot to do with the vs a collective uh how do we make a difference at the policy level who's going to hear us to make sure that you know these projects which are the ones that make a huge difference uh to the way uh, ecology and biodiversity is kind of being messed up with uh how do we bring a change there and of course uh we as architects being able to kind of do our bit through our projects educating our clients uh to make sure that they are on the same page and i'm sure you know if you have somebody to listen to you they are willing to kind of hear and take your uh, inputs into this right right so um talking about the dasapta hotel so guys if you haven't checked out the project yet you must check it out it is in my stories and you can also find it on the website uh, login to sjarchitects.com and check out the project once 
So talking about the hotel, it has all the classical elements of temple architecture, beautifully merged with the contemporary uh, architecture. So walk us through the behind the scenes of creating such a project. It's a long journey and a long story. I'm going to kind of try and uh, see how quickly I can kind of give you uh, a little uh, insight into how we kind of uh, went about it. So basically, this project was uh, a project where uh, uh, the client, Marasa Hospitality, uh, was uh, uh, treading into India, into the religious tourism sector, um, and uh, um, they approached us to commission three projects across the country, and these were all three uh, religious uh, uh, kind of hotspots. Uh, there was Tirupati, Bodhgaya, and Rishikesh. And uh, prior to doing uh, this, uh, uh, these trail of religious tourism projects, they uh, we actually did a building for them in Rajkot, which is an existing hotel that we kind of. Uh, uh, retrofitted it. It was a business hotel that uh, uh, was kind of not functioning for many years. They bought that over. And that was the time that uh, we literally built a relationship with this client. And they were taking their revenue model very carefully to make sure that they kind of take one hotel at a time and not get into this market all at once. Uh, so Rajkot happened and uh, uh, when Rajkot uh, was happening at that time was when they came uh, to us with these three projects. Uh, Tirupati went on the floors first um, and to each of these projects we first did the concept design which was the complete visualization of the project uh, and before it actually uh, started officially there was almost a one and a half year gap because uh, uh, there's a lot to do with permissions and uh, the funding that they were kind of uh, uh, trying to create uh, in the interim. Um, so, um, so Tirupati Hotel, again, uh, the operator that the client chose um, is an Indian brand called Sarovar. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, unlike many other Indian brands uh, in the hotel industry who have a, a very set and definite language on um, how the hotels uh, the um, look of it should be or the way they kind of um, have their parameters in place. Uh, in this project, the client Marasa was the one who was uh, taking the design uh, shots in terms of for the, us, they were the one point contact. Um, and since there was no brand identity uh, that Sarovar wanted out of this project, we had a completely free hand from both the clients and the operators uh, to try and come up with what we'd like to identify this project as. Um, and with a lot of our past experience, uh, the office has been completely involved in creating brand identities for retail, uh, whether it was the Fab India Kalaghora project or the Aura Diamonds. Um, so creating brand identity was something that uh, uh, we really enjoyed. Um, and this was a totally new sector for us to kind of, uh, this was our first Greenfield Hotel project. Um, after that, Bodhgaya is also kind of now ready, completely operational, uh, of course, uh, right now because of the pandemic. Um, so um, giving that free hand on creating a brand identity was something that uh, we always had in our mind, but we, don't know, we didn't know how to kind of go about it. Uh, for us, usually every project starts with uh, the site and uh, that site visit and literally the context of that site 
and literally being there for two to three days and seeing and exploring the whole region around, especially these temple towns, which are so rich in terms of their history and culture. Uh, uh, that's where we start our journey from. And those literally kind of hold us um, and they become the benchmark for our entire project on what are the visuals we carry back from there, what are the experiences we carry back from there. And uh, uh, Tirupati has uh, uh, um, this, um, so you have the temple which is at the top in Tirumala. Um, the whole region of Tirupati has, uh, uh, um, you know, the Saptagiri Hills. These are uh, um, these are basically the part of the eastern ghats of our country uh, and have formed kind of millions of years ago. Um, and at the top is the Tirumala temple. And uh, to reach the temple, there are two routes. One is a ghat route and one is a walking pathway. And that walking pathway is a 14 kilometer uh, distance and at an elevation of uh, 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 over 400 meters or so. Um, so in that path, you actually see beautiful temples completely locking your entire path. And these temples are all Vishnu temples, uh, various different iconography that you can catch there. You have, and they're stepped. You're walking through layers and layers of stairways with little, little Gopurams and temples all across. And they're smeared. They're smeared with Haldi, Kumkum, the Gulal Wala Pink. Uh, and you'll see that completely, that color. And you'll see even the temples are, they're actually made up of granite, but the way uh, um, the um, soil and the color of the soil across the whole Ghat region and the hills and the mountains there is uh, almost ochreish red. Um, so you'll see that also smeared with that layer of uh, uh, dusty sand color. Um, so all of this kind of started building up this entire visual of what this temple town is and what we kind of wanted to carry out. And when you go there and you kind of go to the temple, that's something, uh, it's, I, I don't know if you've ever gone to the Tirupati temple, it's, uh, it's a lot of effort to see the Lord and get that one second darshan of the Lord. Um, and people are kind of, I don't know what makes people get that energy to really go there and stand there. I've done it thrice, uh, but I've, I've always had. But at the end of it, I think that energy in the Garbhagriha to see that idol uh, may be the reason that people come there again and again. So this entire journey to reach the temple and see the idol is in itself so gruesome uh, in terms of you know all your senses. Um, that you wanted to create a space that when people come back, you are in a space that's absolutely calm. Uh, you are in a space where you're not in this hustle and bustle of the rush and the number of people and the number of uh, voices that you hear over there. Uh, and that was that complete opposite that we were really hoping to get. Uh, and we have kind of uh, achieved that. Um, and luckily our site was in, a, um, in an area uh, that uh, when we got the site uh, was at a um, time where uh, uh, this was pretty much away from all the other hotels in that town. Uh, we're pretty close to the airport now. Uh, we're pretty close to the toll from where uh, you start climbing up the Tirupati Hills. Um, and it's at the end of this uh, locality, which is now developed into a very uh, uh, highly residential area. Um, and you're at the end where the foothills of the... Uh, 
saptagiri kind of uh, meets and you have on the north um, the entire mountain range uh, so what we had was a site where you had the north as a reserve forest uh, with the mountain range on the east we had a water park which was full of noise so it's like you can imagine the whole crowd from chennai chennai is very close to uh, uh, this and many other smaller uh, towns other than the big city of chennai people would come kind of here for a water park and water parks are like totally noisy so we had the east which was totally noisy we had the south and the west which was developing and we knew that uh, um, the future and the urban landscape of this whole space is only going to change and change you won't have anything which is going to be completely uh, open for you to look out um, so what was very important for us was to try and create uh, uh, this particular space to be able to have its own views so you had this beautiful reserve forest at the north um and you had to create your own views which was inward looking quite introverted and with this whole thought of going to the temple and seeing what the temple was like um indian temples have a very very rigid system of the way it works you know so you have your uh, gateways you have the outer walls you have the inner walls you have the mandapa you have the front mandapa then inner mandapa and then you have the sanctum which is the garbagriha and then you have the circumambulatory path which goes around the garbagriha so that's what a typical uh, um, uh, hindu uh, temple planning is like uh, and we took cues from there um, not from its uh, 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 more from its uh, uh, essence in terms of uh, how rigid how orthogonal how geometric it is how introverted and inward looking is a temple where you know your core essence is the sanctum uh away you have the lord uh, and that's where all the focus is um of course we couldn't have done a building uh, given the complications of what hotel planning demands you have a lot to do with adjacencies so the way a visitor moves the way the staff moves the seamlessness between staff movements and visitor movements are very very important where staff doesn't get seen on where the back of the house really works it needs to be a whole factory working behind uh which you don't kind of end up seeing so uh keeping all that in mind it was not possible for us to do anything circumambulatory um and hence what the plan kind of generated was we have a footprint of the building which is about 70 meters by almost 100 meters and within that um it was very important for us to create this central space which is a courtyard but it's a water body and what all indian temples do most of them is that you have this pushkarni or a kund which you enter into uh, that's really a sacred space where you're kind of washing up and then going to the temple of course even what it does is uh, in such hot and dry climates um, these water bodies start changing the thermal comfort within the space um, so uh, that was our idea of creating that central water body and uh, what happened through the planning to make sure that all your restaurants and your fnb outlets are very seamlessly attached to the whole back of the house services uh, the lotus cafe became the center of the water body and it stuck away against a particular wall because all adjacencies of the seamless movements of staff is what's important uh, so that's how the real planning came about um so uh, uh, yeah so uh, what what we had was on the east with this whole noise that was going on 
Our BOH came completely on the east, so we did not want any public spaces on the east. Um, at the end, when we opened this hotel, that water park totally shut down, and it doesn't exist today. But it was for the good because we uh, really wanted uh, all our spaces to kind of uh, uh, be oriented in this manner. Um, so yeah, context also changes over time, but uh, that was a clue for us to make sure that noise is kept away from the public and from the visitors and the guests. Uh, yeah, so we had the public block right in the front. The guest block is right at the back, and the guest block is the one that gets the beautiful North Reserve forest views. And a part of the guest block gets the inward-looking Lotus Cafe uh, water body views. Um, all our reception, banqueting, conferencing, business centers, all of that is right in the front. Um, and other than the water body, we have a pool and a pool court. And the other functions are we have two F&B outlets. Uh, we are about 121 keys, which is 121 room hotel. Um, we have a spa, we have a gym, we have an indoor game uh, space. So all the facilities that really need to come in for them to identify as a four-star, five-star hotel, because they all come under the parameters of uh, uh, you know what you have to abide by to be able to get your licensing for uh, the grade of the hotel. Um, so uh, uh, that was where the germ idea kind of came about in terms of how clues from the temple planning kind of uh, uh, literally came into where a classical language was distilled and filtered to get to a contemporary language because overall our building is a very simple structural system. It's a frame structural system and all the focus in terms of um, the materiality and the design in terms of even how we constructed is where we really had our joy with uh, the Lotus Cafe on how we kind of uh, uh, created that space. Um, and while the whole planning was happening, somewhere the image uh, and the uh, imagery that we carried from all the Vishnu temples along that walk of Alipri, which was that 14 kilometer walk that I mentioned earlier, uh, kept coming back to us and uh, this whole thought of uh, uh, how do we bring in the uh, emotions and the feelings of what the avatars uh, or the dashavatar meant into a space. And that was a very difficult task for us to because it's, it's completely an interpretation. You know, I may interpret it one way, you may interpret it some other way. Uh, but somehow when it came to functions and public functions connecting with each of these avatars, things started to fall in place and they made sense. You know, like how the pool became the Matsya. Uh, um, the um, Kurma, which is uh, the amphibian, which is, so you, what happens in the Dashaktar is that the first five is more evolutionary when it comes to the levels of beings. It's from a water-based uh, animal, which is a fish, to a amphibian, to a mammal, which is the Varaha, which is a boar, um, then it goes to Narsimha, which is half uh, uh, man and half uh, beast. Uh, um, and then it goes to uh, um, the human forms. But in the human forms, it's not evolutionary. It is more to do with the Varnas. Uh, you know how the caste system happens in India? So it's actually, it starts with a priest, which is Vamana. Then it goes to Parshurama who is uh, kind of a, 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 a person who's not uh, moving out. He's a, shat, a kind of a Kshatriya. Uh, then it goes to Rama, who's a social man, the king. Then it goes to Krishna, uh, who is a cowherd. He's basically 
uh, um, he's actually a service provider. Uh, he's uh, identified as a god uh, much later, but at first he's a Gwala. Uh, you know, uh, then it comes to Buddha, who's like the enlightened one, and Tapasvi, who's given away everything, and then is Kalki, who we are yet to see. So how does each one of them, and each one of them, what did it mean to us? Uh, um, so Kurma was kind of transformative. So you enter into this hotel and you're kind of into the reception space where you're kind of moving away from all that hustle bustle of that town, moving into a space which is completely transformatory. Um, and uh, uh, our journey between what we have along this whole central water body and this whole pathway um, was quite a challenge for us to convince the clients and the operator that we're absolutely fine not doing any air conditioning. And they were kind of concerned about how the intense heat uh, would engage people to walk through that entire length of uh, the hotel to reach from the public block to the guest block. And what happens in middle is your water body in the Lotus Cafe. And there's just so much engagement that you do not even realize that you have huge uh, overhangs across this. It faces the east and the west, so you just have the morning sun and then you, it's in the direction of the wind as well. Uh, um, so it works kind of beautifully uh, over there. Coming to the Lotus Cafe, so Lotus Cafe, why it came at the threshold of the water and the land is because uh, uh, Narsima, who's neither man nor beast, he neither evolves during the day nor the night. He's neither on the land nor in the water. So it's the duality of Narsima that actually kind of, uh, we took two interpretations. One is Narsima and one is the lotus, which is uh, the form or the emblem that uh, Vishnu is seen across all um, um, his avatars. Um, and lotus became a very important uh, emblem. And what uh, we then started to kind of uh, explore is um, taking the lotus as a form and how do you geometrically kind of refine it to be able to kind of uh, symbolically make it as simple and geometric, uh, not make it gimmicky at all? Because for us, our words that we had associated with for this project was, you know, pure, contemporary, geometric, divine, and serene spaces, uh, which uh, were constantly something that we had to catch ourselves to make sure that nothing is going um, in a zone which people won't be able to kind of connect with. At the end, these are all people-centric spaces. Um, and that's what the Lotus Cafe does, that's Narsima. Uh, the banquet halls become Rama, which is the social man. So everything was then uh, iconography, a symbol, and then how that symbol was transformed into various different aspects and materials, whether it is the rugs, whether it is the wall paneling, whether it's the lights, uh, in the space, uh, whether it's the uh, uh, graphics in the space, whether it's the handles that you enter into each space, uh, they're all a part of that one symbol that develops into various different uh, forms and various different uh, uh, mediums kind of come uh, 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 literally evolve out of these spaces. Right. Um, right. So yeah, Rama was banquet. I'll quickly touch upon who the others were. Krishna was the Thali restaurant, which was another uh, F&B outlet. And why it was Krishna was because of the whole uh, uh, 
uh, personality that Krishna was. And our, this Thali restaurant actually serves Thalis from across the country. It focuses on a lot of South Indian Thalis, but it does Thalis from across the country. So that entire playfulness of what Krishna is and how even the program kind of developed with that, uh, um, it was, was, was quite heartening to see even how the operators were buying into it to be able to try and see how they could kind of open a restaurant that had that uh, uh, playfulness within this whole uh, uh, um, system. Uh, and Buddha is the spa. And Kalki is actually our entrance courtyard that we enter into because you don't know what it is. It's in the outside. You can contemplate, you can introspect, you can retrospect. You have no clue what this uh, is going to be. So it's, it's literally an outside space where you enter into the building. Yeah, so that's in a gist what this project is about. Right. So what kind of, of difficulties did you face on site with the material vendor construction team? Or uh, how did you handle the workmanship of the site for this project? You know, overall, the structure uh, is purely a RCC frame structure. Uh, the challenge was literally the Lotus Cafe. Uh, and given that we were a site which was a pretty tight site uh, and we were building uh, uh, within a three and a quarter acre and we were building roughly about 1,10,000, 1,15,000 square feet, uh, the logistics of how to build on this site was the most important thing on which buildings or which blocks go first so that your material movement and your operations on site is uh, very well defined and one doesn't kind of hinder the operations of the other. Um, so even when we kind of prepared our uh, uh, nomenclatures and drawings, they're always based on the blocks and which blocks would kind of get built first. And the Lotus Cafe was something which was built last along with the water body because of the amount of um, uh, complications that had in terms of its structure. Uh, it's a purely steel structure sitting on RCC plinth beams. Um, and uh, uh, the, the absolutely thin roof that you see, which creates this multifaceted roof, uh, is just a 50 mm thick screed. Um, and that screed which sits on a uh, shuttering that's a uh, 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 corrugated uh, uh, GI sheet, uh, which is left there as it is. Um, and the structure is like with these V columns. So all columns are V and they're circular and they're completely in structural steel and structural steel which is infilled with concrete so that it takes the load of the whole system. Now given that it's an FNB outlet, the works of MEP goes into it, whether it's uh, uh, firefighting, air conditioning, uh, uh, all sorts of detectors uh, um, and the complication of how kind of uh, do you integrate this within this multifaceted structure uh, called for a second layer on the inside, which was again doubly faceted from what you see on the top. Um, so the challenges really were, were first to work out the whole logistics, uh, get from a structural consultant this steel structure, which uh, um, he was postponing for the longest time because for him also this was that icing on the cake. And he wanted to keep buying his time to make sure that he gets the most light structure that we had asked out of him. Um, and uh, this structure went at the end. And while we were doing this whole structure, though the metalworks kind of got, uh, you know, tractors were coming in, JCBs were coming in, cranes were coming in to lift this entire structural system and putting them in. Um, and uh, once we got in there, 
uh, we definitely wanted to see how the mock-up of this 50 mm thick screen would really work because that was key to this entire structure. Um, and only after we were all convinced as a team, which was right from the civil contractor to the PMC to the client's team and us and the structural consultants, then is when we kind of credit into building this entire thing. And given Tirupati, which is hot in the day, uh, during the summer months, people can work only from 7 to 11 and then they kind of, you know, wait for the sun to kind of go down and then start from 3 onwards. It was not possible for us to build during the day. Um, and uh, uh, because it's 50 mm and it's not kind of uh, reinforced, uh, it's nominally reinforced, um, the setting time becomes very quick. So you had to be uh, casting this at a time when you do not uh, uh, have so much heat. Um, so the entire team was up there and the actual casting happened 2 a.m. in the night and it had to happen in batches with no cold joints because the moment you have cold joints, we don't have waterproofing which takes a layer of BBC. We have a, 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 we have a, a PU-based waterproofing that goes into it and more the number of cold joints, more will be the number of cracks that you will kind of have. Um, so it was a task that this team literally kind of managed um, through the VRs of night, literally standing there on that lightweight roof and vibrating it in the middle of the night and creating this space. Yeah, so these, yeah, these were the kind of challenges that uh, uh, were there in constructing. And uh, I think with a team that is uh, mindful enough on how to make these work, uh, uh, you're kind of able to do that. Uh, and of course, mock-ups help. Right, right. We have quite some interesting questions from the audience. Uh, the first one is, how do you manage the timeline and budget for such large-scale projects? So at every stage, you know, right from our concept, once uh, we start design integrating and we know or we have clarity of how we're going to go about things, we don't get into tender unless and until we are absolutely clear. There's a budget that comes in. This is a 120 key hotel. It started off being a three-star hotel for the client. Uh, the client is able to pitch it at a five-star because of the product that we gave him. And the cost at which we gave him was literally between a three to four-star when it comes to a perky cost when you talk in the hotel industry language. Um, so... Um, constant monitoring to make sure that you're able to take uh, your past experiences or uh, reach out for help to your contractors who will be willing to help to see whether these new thoughts and these new ideas, because Tirupati was a project where everything is customized. There's nothing which is bought off the shelf, whether it is the carpet or whether it's the handle, um, everything is customized and crafted and crafted from a uh, a perspective that, uh, you know, we've used a lot of crafts from the region. So trying and collaborating with the right people to make sure that you're able to kind of uh, get what you have intended for and keep looking at those costs uh, beforehand to make sure that the budget that was given, we stay within. And if something is going higher, of course, we end up value engineering that there and then trying and going out in the market and seeing what would and uh, there are many stories to say which i may not be able to share right now uh, but to get to uh, what were the various different levels of collaborations that we had to do for this project it's enormous to try and get 
to the um, root of who we could work with for various different things and try and get even the cost kind of um, limited um yeah so you 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 have to monitor your costs uh, before you go to the tender stage through the tender stage because it's a hospitality project we did mock ups and we had separate mock up tenders and the mock up tenders gave us a very clear idea and picture of what the cost is going to emerge as and the mock up gives us an opportunity that if there's any further value engineering that requires to be done it happens before the bulk uh, goes out uh, yeah so uh it's it's constant monitoring it's uh, making sure that uh, uh you have the best resources you can reach out to to make sure you're able to get your intent without any dilution and able to get the product and the quality right right um the second question is what is the first thing you look at when you start working on a design problem what's the first thing there are many things uh because uh, uh it's the site that gives you clues it's the climate that gives you clues it's the cultural context that gives you clues it's the bylaws that constrains us hugely to make sure that uh we are able to use those constraints as opportunities um and uh, so it's it's a lot of it's my daughter wants to come and see her yes please She's dancing in front of me to make me laugh. <laughs> no, please invite her. We would love to say hi. So I was trying Now to not look at her. There is a burst of seeing her dance in front. Um, yeah. So, uh, um, so design problem is uh, 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 when does it become a problem? As in everything is. Uh, uh seen as as in what what are your various different parameters when you start design i think it starts with your client's brief and trying in first ensuring that that brief works for the project works for the bylaws of the project uh, and that's where even the educating um the client comes in in terms of uh, what's your budget what's your area what's your program and what will your uh, overall context allow you to build Uh, yeah so it's it's varied it's uh, it's highly layered and each cap needs to keep getting opened up um as you're kind of weaving the story so there's no one answer to that right right so while working on a project in a different city what problems do you face with the contractor or construction team while you're using the while you're uh, collaborated with the local contractors not your own contract No, but none of our projects are uh, anything like our own contractors. Most of our projects always get tendered out, um, and when we are working in uh, the rest of the country, it's always uh, you end up uh, getting new fines all the time. Uh, um, so even on uh, uh, this project, the entire team that we were working was for the very first time. The civil contractor was a Chennai-based uh, company. uh the interior contractors were two of them both out of bombay um and um to make sure that uh, um you are able to assess um how these contractors would suit or gel it's not just the lowest bidder it's basically who's going to be able to understand you your design your drawings and able to give you what you want um and i think there is where also the client's uh, uh buy in is a huge one 
Uh, so when pre-qualifications happen for each of these contractors, the clients are very much a part of the entire process to be able to assess, uh, uh, you know, who is going to suit. Uh, because something like the Lotus Cafe, uh, for that contractor, he was doing it for the very first time. Uh, he'd never done that before. And I think it's everything to do with the attitude of contractors. Most of our contractors we worked with is if you have the right attitude and you're able to kind of uh, understand what the architect wants, uh, we're all able to sail together. There are many ups and downs that come. I think we support each other, uh, take the support from whoever is necessary, and uh, you're kind of able to kind of bridge the gap. Um, so for us, yes, it's been a lot of new contractors on each of the projects because uh, uh, it's never been the contractors that we've previously worked in, especially when it comes to large architectural projects. Right, right. What when are I the mean concerns? Large, I mean this scale. Right. Sorry. Okay. No, that's okay. What are the concerns that a designer has uh, for acoustics of that place versus interior design of that place? Acoustics of the space versus interior design of the space. So they go completely hand in hand and it totally depends on your program. So something like a banqueting hall, something like a multi-purpose hall, uh, which requires acoustics, uh, um, has to, uh, 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 the acoustics plays the first role. So to give you an example of the banqueting hall in Tirupati, uh, acoustic plays a very important role because those banquets are used in various different styles and acoustics is very important there. And in terms of interiors, the materials that we chose to kind of make that acoustics work was right from fabric panels that we could work with inclusive of we worked with MDF into which we could engrave the bow uh, emblem, you know, which Rama has uh, uh, the emblem that kind of the iconography that we used out of Rama uh, that got engraved into the MDF panels. And we customized MDF panels with these engraving to make sure that uh, acoustics of the space and the absorption within the space could be worked out. Um, so it goes hand in hand in spaces which require very sound acoustics to make sure that you don't have very highly reflective surfaces and you have surfaces that absorb. So you choose your materials accordingly. So uh, what I was saying is that when comfort becomes luxury and when you start adding all those other layers uh, uh, that really take up or guzzle the building's uh, energy levels, uh, that's when a building becomes unsustainable. Now, how do you give back to the earth to make sure that this whole balance still remains? Uh, and that's when, you know, uh, the need of the R is moving into net zero building so that your building can kind of generate its own energy. Uh, you're taking water from it, you need to kind of recharge it back. Uh, so what are sustainable buildings are buildings that uh, can uh, sustain for themselves, can produce their own energy and can give back to Mother Earth as much as it's drawing from it, uh, whether it's from Mother Earth or whether it's any form of gridded uh, power, uh, the amount uh, of, uh, even in terms of sanitation, uh, which is the most important one in terms of solid waste, whether it's garbage or whether it's uh, solid waste. Yeah, so a building can be sustainable uh, by you ensuring that you're able to kind of uh, make it sustainable. So just to give quick examples, uh, Nirvana does this completely. When we won the awards for Nirvana, the category of awards that we went into were buildings where only lead rated buildings are allowed to get in. 
and nirvana has not even uh, doesn't even have hvac in the building and in lead you have one of the criterias where you ought to have your buildings air conditioned so you're pumping so much of energy into it and then you're kind of getting into uh, the system so that could be questionable but uh, what i'm trying to come to is uh, uh, nirvana has no hvac at all so literally 60% of your energy levels completely go down um we have thorough cross ventilation and the uh, way the building gets oriented it ensures that um, you keep your fans also to the least and you don't need light at all through the day um so you're literally 80% gone down in terms of your energy consumption so it's only the 20% that's your equipments in terms of computers refrigerators projections whatever else um same with the schools and the college campuses that we do in spite of giving the client electrical points um they don't have lights installed at all because when it comes to the school working hours and the college working hours you don't need light because the buildings are oriented that way that you get daylight completely uh yeah so these are means of being sustainable but they are not like uh to become a net zero building i think all of us have to literally reach there where we balance out this whole act of building right uh how do you choose materials uh, this is probably the last question how do you choose materials i think in it, terms of sustainability it, it in terms of sustainability in terms of sustainability as far as possible try and use materials that are locally available to you um so that you're not kind of increasing your transportation costs when it comes to material availability uh, a lot of times we have tried uh, to see what uh, we able to kind of get from in and around the region uh, um and a lot of times even if you think of making maybe mud blocks from the soil at times it works at times it may not work because you don't have the stability that you require for the soil so it's not that every time you can use the soil right from there um so till the time you're able to use materials like in tirupati we had uh, the aac block makers right outside the site the local makers but had the entire uh hand punching machines out of which they were making the ac blocks uh as per the standards that are uh, to be met based on the is uh and we had ac blocks right outside so uh it wasn't that we were going to hyderabad to aircon to buy them um so uh, i think it, it it totally depends on what you have around you got to search your market around you got to see who are the uh, uh, uh crafts who are available around uh even in terms of all the crafts that we chose for the region it was all from the region so even the crafts people were kind of um, uh, uh associated with through this uh, uh facilitator that we used which was baya who helped us through the crafts and they used the people from the region so uh yeah so when it comes to resources try and see what's the closest you can avail of uh one last question we are going to take what is the difference between net zero building and sustainable building ankit sharma is asking this question net What's zero building the difference between a net zero building and a sustainable building uh a net zero building is where you're literally not drawing anything from the outside um uh, a sustainable building is where you're attempting to try and reduce one one parameter um for this is my this is my version of it i'm sure experts will have a different version to this whole thing but i think anything that you are able to minimize your use of energy 
uh, um, can be called sustainable now it's a very relative term on how you're kind of reducing this so if you're able to reduce your operation costs uh, by not having air conditioning and you're able to kind of <clears throat> live within that environment where you have very thoroughly naturally ventilated spaces or passive cooled spaces then you're not putting into that energy uh, so you're not drawing that energy so even that's called sustainable but a net zero building is where you are generating your own energy uh, um, so a net zero building is where you do not give anything outside uh, uh, or take any other support from outside for your waste to go outside the building is is the way i would put it right right thank you so much sarika for giving us so many insights about the project and about uh, your journey so far thank you everybody for joining us here it thank you sir Yeah, Thank you for the patience with the technology. Again. No, that's all right. That's completely all right. Even I didn't know these things for quite some time, and I had to slowly learn everything about Instagram. So that's okay. It's always it happens in the first. Thank time. you, pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Thank pleasure you for joining this. us. Yeah. All right. Thank, Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye.